0: Hey everyone, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. If you're just joining us, this is a show where we read old classic books, and you can just conk out or listen to the stories, whatever you like, but hopefully you'll be asleep in a little bit. If the show ends up working for you and you like it, go on Apple Podcasts and leave a quick rating and write down a book that you'd like to hear on the podcast, and maybe we'll read it. Just because I'm hoping you'll be asleep by the end of this, couple things. Tonight, I'll be recording from the shores of Woods Hole, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod. I'm here till June for the Transom Story Workshop, where rookies like me learn how to make good radio. So I have to thank the incredible Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media for this cozy recording space. And also, the music you're hearing right now is by my good friend, James Lepkowski, and it's played on this amazing guitar ukulele thing he made. Last week, I started reading Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Since I'm on Cape Cod and it's so important to this place, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I'm reading this amazing copy with all these prints in it woodblock and lino prints and I'm going to have to give it back to the library here pretty soon so I'm just going to keep reading from it so if you want to hear the beginning where we start off go back to the last episode and start there and then we pick up here where I'm recording this there's this little window and I can see it right out to the Atlantic Ocean and I'm only an hour away from where this book takes place where it was written. It feels pretty profound. So, lay your head down, settle in, fix your pillow just how you like it, and slowly melt into your bed, and close your eyes, and let me read to you. Chapter 5 Breakfast. I quickly followed Sue, and descending into the barroom, accosted the grinning landlord very pleasantly. I cherished no malice towards him, though he had been skylarking me with not a little in the matter of a bedfellow. However, a good laugh is a mighty good thing, and rather too scarce a good thing, the more's the pity. So if any one man, in his own proper person, Afford stuff for a good joke to anybody. Let him not be backward, but let him cheerfully allow himself to spend and be spent in that way. And the man that has anything bountifully laughable about him, be sure there is more in that man than you perhaps think for. The barroom was now full of the boarders who had been dropping in the night previous and whom I had not as yet had a good look at. They were nearly all whalemen, chief mates and second mates and third mates and sea carpenters and sea coopers and sea blacksmiths and harpooners and shipkeepers, a brown and brawny company with bosky beards and unshorn shaggy set, all wearing monkey jackets for morning gowns. You could pretty plainly tell how long each one had been ashore. This young fellow's healthy cheek is like a sun-toasted pear in hue, it would seem to smell almost as musky. He cannot have been there three days landed from his Indian voyage. That man next to him looks a few shades lighter. You might say a touch of satin wood is in him, and the complexion of the third still lingers a tropic tawn, but slightly beech withal. He, doubtless, has tarried whole weeks ashore. But who could show a cheek like Queequeg, which, barred with various tints, seemed like the Andes' western slope, to show forth in one array, contrasts and climates zone by zone. Grub ho, now cried the landlord, flinging open a door, and in we went for breakfast. They say that men who have seen the world thereby become quite at ease in manner, quite self-possessed in company. Not always, though. Ledyard, the great New England traveler, and Mungo Park, the scotch one of all men they possessed the least assurance in the parlor but perhaps the mere crossing of siberia in a sledge drawn by dogs as Ledyard did or the taking in a long solitary walk on an empty stomach in the negro heart of africa which was the sum of poor mungo's performances this kind of travel i say may not be the very best mode of attaining a high social polish still for the most part, that sort of thing is to be had anywhere. These reflections just here are occasioned by the circumstance that after we're all seated at the table and I was preparing to hear some good stories about whaling, to my no small surprise, nearly every man maintained a profound silence. And not only that, but they looked embarrassed. Yes, here were a set of sea dogs, many of whom the slightest bashfulness had boarded great whales on the high seas, entire strangers to them, and dueled them dead without winking. And yet here they sat, at a social breakfast table, all of the same calling, all of the kindred tastes, looking around as sheepishly at each other, as though they had never been out of sight of some sheepfold among the green mountains. A curious sight, these bashful bears, these timid warrior whalemen. But as for Queequeg, why, Queequeg sat there among them, at the head of the table, too, it so chanced, as cool as an icicle. To be sure, I cannot say much for his breeding. His greatest admirer could not have cordially justified his bringing his harpoon to his breakfast with him, and using it there without ceremony, reaching over the table with it to the imminent jeopardy of many heads and grappling the beefsteaks towards him. But that was certainly very coolly done by him and everyone knows that in the most people's estimation to do anything coolly is to do it genteelly. We will not speak of all Queequeg's peculiarities here how he eschewed coffee and hot rolls and applied his undivided attention to his beefsteaks done rare enough that When the breakfast was over, he withdrew like the rest into his public room, lighted his tomahawk pipe, and was sitting there quietly digesting and smoking with his inseparable hat on when I sallied out for a stroll. The Street If I had been astonished at first catching a glimpse of so outlandish an individual as Queequeg circulating among the polite society of a civilized town, that astonishment soon departed upon taking my first daylight stroll through the streets of New Bedford. In thoroughfares nigh the docks, any considerable seaport will frequently offer to view the queerest-looking nondescripts from foreign parts. Even in Broadway and Chestnut Streets, Mediterranean mariners will sometimes jostle the affrighted ladies. Regent Street is not unknown to Alaskars, and Malays, and at Bombay, in the Apollo Green, live Yankees have often scared the natives, but New Bedford beats all Water Street, and Wapping, in these last mentioned haunts, you see only sailors, but in New Bedford, actual cannibals stand chatting at street corners, savages outright, many of whom yet carry on their bones unholy flesh, it makes a stranger stare, but, besides the Fijians, Tongadabuans, Aromagons, Pananagians, and Brigidians, and besides the wild specimens of the whaling craft which unheeded reel about the streets, you will see the other sights still more curious, certainly more comical. There weekly arrive in this town scores of green Vermonters and New Hampshire men, all athirst for gain and glory in the fishery. They're mostly young, of stalwart frames, fellows who have felled forests, and now seek to drop the axe and snatch away a lance. Many are as green as the green mountains from which they came, and some things you would think them but a few hours old. Look there, that chap strutting round the corner. He wears a beaver hat and swallow-tailed coat, girdled with a sailor belt and sheath knife. Here comes another, with a sou'wester and bombazian cloak. No town-bred dandy will compare with a country-bred one. I mean a downright bumpkin dandy. A fellow that, in the dog days, will mow his two acres in buckskin gloves for fear of tanning his hands. Now when a country dandy like this takes it into his head and makes a distinguished reputation and joins the great whale fishery you should see the comical things he does upon reaching the seaport. In bespeaking his sea outfit, he orders bell buttons to his waistcoats, straps to his canvas trousers. Ah, poor hayseed. How bitterly will burst those straps in the first howling gale when thou art driven straps, buttons, and all down the throat of the tempest. But think not of this famous town as only harpooners, cannibals and bumpkins to show her visitors not at all still new bedford is a queer place had it not been for us whalemen that tract of land would this day perhaps have been in as howling conditions as the coast of labrador as it is parts of her back country are enough to frighten one they look so bony the town itself is perhaps the dearest place to live in in all of new england it is a land of oil, true enough, but not like Canaan, a land, also, of corn and wine. The streets do not run with milk, nor in the springtime do they pave them with fresh eggs. Yet in spite of this, nowhere in all of America will you find more patrician-like houses, parks and gardens more opulent than in New Bedford. Whence came they? planted upon this once scraggy scoria of a country. Go and gaze upon the iron emblematical harpoons round yonder lofty mansion and your question will be answered. Yes, all these brave houses and flowery gardens came from the Atlantic, Pacific and Indian oceans. One and all they were harpooned and dragged up hither from the bottom of the sea. Can her Alexander perform a feat like that? In New Bedford, fathers, they say, give whales for dowers to their daughters, and portion off their nieces for a few porpoises apiece. You must go to New Bedford to see a brilliant wedding, for, they say, they have reservoirs of oil in every house, and every night recklessly burn their lengths and spermacetic candles. In summertime, the town is sweet to see, full of fine maples, long avenues of green and gold, and in August, high in the air, the beautiful and bountiful horse chestnuts, candelabra wise, proffer the passer by their tapering upright cones of congregated blossoms. So omnipotent is art, which in many a district of New Bedford has superinduced bright terraces of flowers upon the barren refuse rocks thrown aside at creation's final day. And the women of New Bedford, they bloom like their own red roses, but roses only bloom in summer, whereas the fine carnation of their cheeks is perennial as sunlight in the seventh heavens. Elsewhere match that bloom of theirs ye cannot, save in Salem, where they tell me the young girls breathe such musk their sailors' sweethearts smell them miles offshore, as though they were drawing nigh the odorous moluccas instead of the puritanic sands. The Chapel. In this same New Bedford, there stands a whalesman's chapel, and few are the moody fishermen, shortly bound for the Indian Ocean or Pacific, who fail to make a Sunday visit to the spot. I am sure that I did not. Returning from my first morning stroll, I again sallied out upon the special errand. The sky had changed from clear, sunny cold to driving sleet and mist. Wrapping myself in my shaggy jacket of the cloth called bearskin, I fought my way against the stubborn storm. Entering, I found a small scattered congregation of sailors and sailors' wives and widows, a muffled silence reigned, only broken at times by the shrieks of the storm. Each silent worshiper seemed purposely sitting apart from the other, as if each silent grief were insular and incommunicable. The chaplain had not yet arrived, and there these silent islands of men and women sat steadfastly, eyeing several marble tablets with black borders, masoned into the wall on either side of the pulpit. Three of them ran something like the following, but I could not pretend to quote. Sacred to the memory of John Talbot, who at the age of 18 was lost overboard near the Isle of Desolation off Patagonia, November 1st, 1836. This tablet is erected to his memory by his sister. Sacred to the memory of Robert Long, Willis Ellery, Nathan Coleman, Walter Canney, Seth Macy, and Samuel Gleig, forming one of the boat's crews of the ship Eliza, who were towed out of sight by a whale on the offshore ground in the Pacific, December 31st, 1839. This marvel is here placed by their surviving shipmates, sacred to the memory of the late Captain Ezekiel Hardy, when the bows of his boat was killed by a sperm whale off the coast of Japan. August 3rd, 1833. This tablet is erected to his memory by his widow. Shaking off the sleet from my ice-glazed hat and jacket, I seated myself near the door, and turning sideways was surprised to see Queequeg near me. Affected by the solemnity of the scene, there was a wandering gaze of incredulous curiosity in his countenance. This savage was the only person present who seemed to notice my entrance, because he was the only one who could not read, and therefore was not reading those frigid inscriptions on the wall. Whether any of the relatives of the seamen whose names appeared there were now among the congregation, I knew not. But so many are the unrecorded accidents in the fishery, And so plainly did several women present wear the countenance, if not the trappings of some unceasing grief, that I feel sure that here, before me, were assembled those in whose unhealing hearts the sight of those bleak tablets sympathetically caused the old wounds to bleed afresh. Oh, ye whose dead lie buried beneath the green grass, whose standing among flowers can say, Here, Here lies my beloved. Ye know not the desolation that broods in bosoms like these. What bitter blanks in those black-bordered marbles which cover no ashes. What despair in those immovable inscriptions. What deadly voids and unbidden infidelities in the lines that seem to gnaw upon all faith and refuse resurrections to the beings who have placelessly perished without a grave as well might those tablets stand in the cave of Elephanta, as here. In what senses of living creatures the dead of mankind are included, why it is that a universal proverb says of them, that they tell no tales, though containing more secrets than the good one's hands, how it is that to his name, who yesterday departed for the other world, we prefix so significant, and infidel a word, and yet do not thus entitle him, if he but embarks for the remotest indies of this living earth, while the life insurance companies pay death forfeitures upon immortals, in what eternal, unstirring paralysis, and deadly, hopeless trance, yet lies antique Adam, who died sixty round centuries ago, how it is that we still refuse to be comforted for those who we nevertheless maintain, are dwelling in unspeakable bliss. Why all the living so strive to hush all the dead? Wherefore but the rumor of a knocking in a tomb will terrify a whole city. All these things are not without their meanings. But faith, like a jackal, feeds among the tombs. And even from these dead doubts, she gathers her most vital hope. I need scarcely to be told with what feelings on the eve of Nantucket voyage i regarded those marble tablets, and by the murky light of that dark and doleful day, read the fate of the whalemen who had gone before me. Yes, Ishmael, the same fate may be thine, but somehow I grow merry again. Delightful inducements to embark, fine chance for promotion it seems. Aye, a stoveboat will make me a speechlessly quick chaotic bundling. Aye, a stoveboat will make me an immortal by brevet. Yes, there is death in the business of wailing. A speechlessly quick chaotic bundling of a man into eternity. But what then? Methinks we have hugely mistaken this matter of life and death. Methinks that what they call my shadow here on earth as my true substance. Methinks that in looking at things spiritual. We are too much like oysters. Observing the sun through the water. And thinking that thick water. And the thinnest of air. Methinks my body. Is but the leaves of the better being. In fact. Take my body who will. Take it I say. It is not me. And therefore three cheers for Nantucket. And come a stoveboat and stove body when they will, for stave my soul, Jove himself cannot. The Pulpit I had not been seated very long, ere a man of a certain venerable robustness entered. Immediately as the storm pelted the door, flew back upon bidding him. A quick, regardful eyeing of him by all the congregation sufficiently attested that this fine old man was the chaplain. Yes, it was the famous Father Mapple, so-called by the whalemen, among whom he was a very great favorite. He had been a sailor and a harpooner in his youth, but for many years past had dedicated his life to the ministry. At the time I now write of, Father Mapple was in the hearty winter of a healthy old age, that sort of old age which seems merging into a second flowering youth for among all the fissures of his wrinkles there shone certain mild gleams of a newly developed bloom the string verdure peeping forth even beneath February snow no one having previously heard his history could for the first time behold Father Mapple without the utmost interest because there were certain engrafted clerical peculiarities about him imputable that adventurous maritime life he had led when he entered i observed that he was carrying no umbrella and certainly had not come in his carriage for his tarpaulin hat ran down with melting sleet and his great pilot cloth jacket seemed almost to drag him to the floor with the weight of the water it had absorbed however hat and coat and overshoes were one by one removed and hung up in a little space in an adjacent corner. When, arrayed in a decent suit, he quietly approached the pulpit. Like most old-fashioned pulpits, it was a very lofty one, and since irregular stairs to such a height would, by its long angle with the floor, seriously contract the already small area of the chapel, the architect, it seemed, had acted upon the hint of Father Mapple, and finished the pulpit without a stairs, substituting a perpendicular side ladder, like those used in mounting a ship from a boat at sea. The wife of a whaling captain had provided the chapel with a handsome pair of red worsted man ropes for this ladder, which being itself nicely headed and stained with mahogany color, the whole contrivance, considering what manner of a chapel it was, seen by no means in bad taste. Halting for an instant at the foot of the ladder, and with both hands grasping the ornamental knobs of the man-ropes, Father Mapple cast a look upwards, and then with a truly sailor-like but still reverential dexterity, hand over hand, mounted the steps as if ascending the main top of his vessel. The perpendicular parts of this side ladder, as is usually the case with swinging ones, were of cloth covered rope. Only the rounds were of wood, so that at every step there was a joint. My first glimpse of the pulpit had not escaped me that however convenient for a ship, these joints in the present instance seemed unnecessary, for I was not prepared to see Father Mapple, after gaining the height, slowly turn around and stooping over the pulpit, deliberately drag up the ladder step by step till the whole was deposited within, leaving him impregnable in his little Quebec. I pondered some time without fully comprehending the reason for this. Father Mapple enjoyed such a wide reputation for sincerity and sanctity that I could not suspect him of courting notoriety by any mere tricks of the stage. No, thought I, there must be some sober reason for this thing. Furthermore, and must symbolize something unseen. Can it be, then, that by that act of physical isolation he signifies his spiritual withdrawal for the time from all outward worldly ties and connections? Yes, for replenished with the meat and wine of the word to the faithful man of God, this pulpit, I see, is a self containing stronghold, a law of a lofty Aaron Breitstein with a perennial well of water within the walls. But the side ladder was not the only strange feature of the place. Bar from the chaplain's former seafarings, between the marble cenotaphs on either hand of the pulpit, the wall which formed its back was adorned with a large painting representing a gallant ship beating against a terrible storm of lee coasts of black rocks and snowy breakers. But high above the flying scud and dark rolling clouds There floated a little isle of sunlight From which beamed forth an angel's face And this bright face shed a distant spot Of radiance upon the ship's tossed deck Something like that silver plate Now inserted into the victory's plank Where Nelson fell Ah, noble ship The angel seemed to say Beat on Beat on, thou noble ship, and bear a hearty helm. For lo, the sun is breaking through, the clouds are rolling off, serenest azure as at hand. Nor was the pulpit itself without a trace of the same sea taste that had achieved the latter and the picture. Its panelled front was in the likeness of a ship's bluff bows, and the Holy Bible rested on a projecting piece of scrollwork, fashioned after a ship's fiddle-headed beak. What could be more full of meaning? For the pulpit is ever this earth's foremost part. All the rest comes in its rear. The pulpit leads the world. From thence, it is the storm of God's quick wrath is first descried, and the bow must bear the earliest brunt. From thence, It is the god of breezes, fair or foul, his first invoked for favorable winds. Yes, the world's ship on its passage out, and not a voyage complete, and the pulpit is its prow. The Sermon Father Mapple rose, and in a mild voice of unassuming authority ordered the scattered people to condense. Starboard gangway there, side away to larboard, larboard gangway to starboard, midships, midships. There was a low rumbling of heavy boots among the benches and still slighter shuffling of women's shoes, and then all was quiet again, and every eye was on the preacher. He paused a little, then kneeling in the pulpit's bows, folded his large brown hands across his chest uplifted his closed eyes and offered a prayer so deeply devout that he seemed kneeling and praying at the bottom of the sea. This ended in prolonged solemn tones, like the continual tolling of a bell in a ship that is foundering at sea in a fog. In such tones he commenced reading the following hymn, but changing his manner toward the concluding stanzas burst forth with appealing exultation and joy. The ribs and terrors in the whale arched over me a dismal gloom while all God's sunlit waves rolled by and left me deepening down to doom. I saw the opening maw of hell with endless pains and sorrows there, which none but they that feel can tell. Oh, I was plunging to despair, in black distress I called my God when I could scarce believe him mine He bowed his ear to my complaints no more the wail did me confine With speed he flew to my relief as on radiant dolphin born awful yet bright as lightning shone the face of my deliver God My song forever shall record that terrible that joyful hour I give the glory to my God. He's all the mercy and the power. Nearly all joined in singing this hymn, which swelled high above the howling of the storm. A brief pause ensued. The preacher slowly turned over the leaves of the Bible, and at last, folding his hand upon the proper page, said, Beloved shipmates, clinch the last verse at the first chapter of Jonah and God had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Shipmates, this book, containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in a mighty cable of the scriptures. Yet what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson to us in this prophet. What a noble thing is that canticle of a fish belly How billow-like and boisterously grand. We feel the flood surging over us. We sound with him to the kelpy bottom of the waters. Seaweed and all the slime of the sea is about us. But what is the lesson that the book of Jonah teaches? Shipmates, it's a two-stranded lesson. A lesson to all us sinful men. And a lesson to me as the pilot of the living God. As sinful men, it is a lesson to us all, because it's a story of the sin, half heartedness, suddenly awakened fears, the swift punishment, repentance, prayers, and finally the deliverance and joy of Jonah. As with all sinners among men, the sin of this son of Amadi was in the willful disobedience of the command of God, Never mind now what that command was, or how conveyed, which he found a hard command. But all the things that God would have us do are hard for us to do. Remember that. And hence, he oftener commands that this endeavors to persuade. And if we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. With this sin of disobedience in him, Jonah still further flats at God by seeking to flee from him. He thinks that a ship made by men will carry him to countries where God does not reign, but only the captains of this earth. He skulks about the wharfs of Joppa and seeks a ship that's bound for Tarshish. There lurks, perhaps, a hitherto unheeded meaning there. By all accounts Tarshish, could have been no other city than the modern Cadiz. That's the opinion of learned men. And where is Cadiz, shipmates? Cadiz is in Spain, as far by water from Joppa as Jonah could possibly have sailed in those ancient days, when the Atlantic was an almost unknown sea. Because Joppa, the modern Jaffa, shipmates, is on the most easterly coast of the Mediterranean, the Syrian and Tarshish or Cadiz, more than two thousand miles to the westward from that, just outside the Straits of Gibraltar. See ye not then shipmates, that Jonas sought to flee worldwide from God, miserable man, oh most contemptible and worthy of all scorn, with slouched hat and guilty eye, skulking from his god, prowling among the shipping like a vile burglar hastening to cross the seas. So disordered, self-condemning in his look, that there have been policemen in those days, Jonah, on the mere suspicion of something wrong, had been arrested ere he touched a deck. How plainly he's a fugitive. No baggage. Not a hat box, ballast, or carpet bag. No friends accompany him to the wharf for their ado. At last, after much dodging search, he finds the Tarshish ship receiving the last items of her cargo. And as he steps on board to see its captain in the cabin, all the sailors for a moment desist from hoisting their goods to mark the stranger's evil eye. Jonas sees this, but in vain he tries to look all ease confidence in vain essays his wretched smile strong intuitions of the man assure the mariners he can be no innocent in their gamesome but still serious way one whispers to the other Jack he's robbed a widow or Joe do you mark him he's a bigamist or Harry lad I guess he's an adulterer that broke jail in old Gomorrah or belike one of the missing murderers from sodom another runs to read the bill that struck against the spile upon the wharf to which the ship is moored offering 500 gold coins for the apprehension of a parricide, and containing a description of his person he reads and looks from jonah to the bill while all his sympathetic shipmates now crowd round jonah prepared to lay their hands upon him. Frighted Jonah trembles, and summoning all his boldness to his face, only looks so much more the coward. He will not confess himself suspected, but that itself is strong suspicion, till so he makes the best of it. And when the sailors find him not to be the man that is advertised, they let him pass, and he descends into the cabin. Who's there? Cries the captain at his busy desk, hurriedly making out his papers for the customs. Who's there? Oh, how that harmless question mangles Jonah. For the instant he almost turns to flee again, but he rallies. I seek a passage in this ship to Tarshish. How soon sail ye, sir? Thus far the busy captain had not looked up to Jonah, though the man now stands before him, but no sooner does he hear that hollow voice than he darts a scrutinizing glance. We sail with the next coming tide. Alass, he slowly answered, still intently eyeing him. No sooner, sir. Soon enough for any honest man that goes a passenger. Ha, Jonah, that's another stab. But he swiftly calls away the captain from the scent. I'll sail with ye, he says. The passage money, how much is that? I'll pay now. For it is particularly written, shipmates, as if it were a thing not to be overlooked in this history, that he paid the fare thereof. Here the craft did sail, and taken with the context, this is full of meaning. Now Jonah's captain, shipmates, was one whose discernment detects crime in any, but whose cupidity exposes it only in the penniless. In this world, shipmates, sin that pays its way can travel freely, and without a passport where is virtue, if a pauper, is stopped at all frontiers. So Jonah's captain prepares to test the length of Jonah's purse, ere he judge him openly. He charges him thrice the usual sum, and it's assented to. Then the captain knows that Jonah's a fugitive, but at the same time resolves to help a flight that paves its rear with gold. Yet when Jonah fairly takes out his purse, prudent suspicion still molests the captain. He rings every coin to find a counterfeit. Not a forger, anyway, he mutters, and Jonah is put down for his passage. Point out my stateroom, sir, says Jonah now. I'm travel-weary. I need sleep. Thou lookest like it says the captain, there's thy room. Jonah enters and would lock the door, but the lock contains no key. Hearing him foolishly fumbling there, the captain laughs lowly to himself and mutters something about the doors of convict cells being never allowed to be locked within. All dressed and dusty as he is, Jonah throws himself into his berth and finds the little stateroom ceiling almost resting on his forehead the air is closed and Jonah gasps then in that contracted hole sunk too beneath the ship's waterline Jonah feels the heralding presentiment of that stifling hour when the whale shall hold him in the smallest of his bowels' wards screwed at its axis against the side a swinging lamp slightly oscillates in Jonah's room and the ship Healing over towards the wharf in the weight Of the last bales received The lamp, flame, and all Though in slight motion Still maintains a permanent obliquity With reference to the room Though in truth Infallibly straight itself It but made an obvious the false Lying levels among which it hung The lamp alarms and frightens Jonah As lying in his berth his tormented eyes roll round the place, and this thus far successful fugitive finds no refuge for his restless glance. But that contradiction in the lamp more and more appalls him. The floor, the ceiling, and the side are all awry. Oh, so my conscience hangs in me, he groans, straight upward, so it burns. But the chambers of my soul are all in crookedness, Like one who after a night of drunken revelry Hies to his bed, still reeling But with a conscience yet pricking him As the plungings of the Roman racehorse But so much, the more strike his steel tags into him As one who, in that miserable plight Still turns and turns in giddy anguish Praying God for annihilation Until the fit be passed And at last amid the whirl of woe he feels A deep stupor steals over him, as over the man who bleeds to death, for conscience is the wound, and there's naught to stench it. So after sore wrestlings in his berth, Jonah's prodigy of ponderous misery drags him drowning down to sleep. And now the time of the tide has come. The ship casts off her cables, and from the deserted wharf and the unsheared ship for Tarshish, all careening glides to sea. That ship, my friends, was the first recorded smugglers. The contraband was Jonah. But the sea rebels. He will not bear the wicked burden. A dreadful storm comes on. The ship is like to break. But now, when the boatswain calls all the hands to lighten her, when boxes, bales, and jars are clattering overboard, when the wind is shrieking, and the men are yelling, and every plank thunders with trampling feet right over Jonah's head. In all this raging tumult, Jonah sleeps his hideous sleep. He sees no black sky and raging sea, feels not the reeling timbers, and little hears he, or heeds he, the far rush of the mighty whale, which even now with open mouth is cleaving the seas after him. Aye, shipmates, Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, a berth in the cabin as I have taken it, and was fast asleep. The frightened master comes to him and shrieks in his dead ear. What meanest thou, O sleeper, arise? Startled from his lethargy by that direful cry, Jonah staggers to his feet and, stumbling to the deck, grasps a shroud to look out upon the sea. But at that moment he is sprung upon by a panther billow leaping over the bulwarks. Wave after wave thus leaps into the ship, and finding no speedy vent, runs roaring fore and aft, till the mariners come nigh to drowning while yet afloat. And ever, as the white moon shows her affrighted face from the steep gullies in the blackness overhead, aghast Jonah sees the rearing bowsprit. Pointing high upward, but soon beat downward again towards the tormented deep. Terrors upon terrors run shouting through his soul. In all his cringing attitudes, the god fugitive is now too plainly known. The sailors mark him. More and more certain grow their suspicions of him. And at last, fully to test the truth, by referring the whole matter to high heaven they fall to casting lots to see for whose cause this great tempest was upon them. The lot is Jonah's, death discovered, then how furiously they mob him with their questions. What is thine occupation? Whence comest thou, thy country, what people? But mark now, my shipmates, the behavior of poor Jonah. The eager mariners but ask him who he is and wherefrom whereas they not only receive an answer to those questions, but likewise another answer to a question not put by them. But the unsolicited answer is forced from Jonah by the hard hand of God that is upon them. I am a Hebrew, he cries, and then I fear the Lord of God in heaven, who hath made the sea and the dry land. Fear him, O Jonah. I Well, mightest thou fear the Lord God then? Straight away he now goes to make a full confession, whereupon the mariners become more and more appalled, but still are pitiful. For when Jonah, not yet supplicating God for his mercy, since he but too well knew the darkness of his deserts, when wretched Jonah cries out to them to take him and cast him forth into the sea, For he knew that his sake and this great tempest was upon them. They mercifully turn from him, and seek by other means to save the ship. But all in vain, the indignant gale howls louder. Then, with one hand raised invokingly to God, with the other they not reluctantly lay a hold of Jonah. And now behold Jonah taken up as an anchor, and dropped into the sea, when instantly an oily calmness floats from the east and the sea is still as Jonah carries down the gale with him leaving smooth water behind he goes down in the whirling heart of such masterless commotion that he scarce heeds the moment when he drops seething into the yawning jaws awaiting him and the whale shoots to all his ivory teeth like so many white bolts upon his prison then Jonah Prayed unto the Lord out of the fish's belly, but observe his prayer and learn a weighty lesson. For sinful as he is, Jonah does not weep and wail for direct deliverance. He feels that his dreadful punishment is just. He leaves all his deliverance to God, contenting himself with this, that despite all his pain and pangs, he will still look towards his holy temple. And here shipmates is true and faithful repentance, not clamorous for pardon, but grateful for punishment. And how pleasing to God was this conduct in Jonah as shown in the eventual deliverance of him from the sea and the whale. Shipmates, I do not place Jonah before you to be copied for his sin, but I do place him before you as a model for repentance. Sin not, but if you do, take heed to repent of it like Jonah. While he was speaking these words, the howling of the shrieking, slanting storm without seemed to add new power to the preacher, who, when describing Jonah's sea storm, seemed tossed by the storm himself. His deep chest heaved as with a swell; His tossed arms seemed the warring elements at work, and the thunders that rolled away from his swarthy brow and the light leaping from his eye made all his simple hearers look on him with a quick fear that was strange to them. There now came a lull in his look as he silently turned over the leaves of the book once more, and at last, standing motionless with closed eyes for the moment, seemed communing with God and himself, But again he leaned over towards the people and bowing his head lowly with an aspect of deepest yet manliest humility he spake these words. Shipmates, God has laid out but one hand upon you. Both his hands press upon me. I have read ye by what murky light may be mine the lesson that Jonah teaches to all sinners. And therefore to ye and still more to me, for I am a greater sinner than ye. And now how gladly would I come down from this masthead and sit on the hatches there where you sit and listen as you listen while some one of you reads me that other and more awful lesson which Jonah teaches to me as a pilot of the living God, how being an anointed pilot prophet or speaker of true things, and bidden by the Lord to sound those unwelcome truths in the ears of a wicked Nineveh, Jonah, appalled at the hostility that he should raise, fled from his mission, and sought to escape his duty and his God by taking a ship at Joppa. But God is everywhere. Tarshish he never reached. As we have seen, God came upon him in the whale and swallowed him down in the living gulfs of doom, and with swift slantings tore him along into the midst of the seas, where the eddying depths sucked him ten thousand fathoms down, and the weeds were wrapped up about his head, and all the watery world of woe bowed over him. Yet even then, beyond the reach of any plummet, out of the belly of hell, when the whale grounded upon the ocean's utmost bones, Even then, God heard the engulfed, repenting prophet when he cried. Then God spake unto the fish, and from the shuddering cold and blackness of sea, the whale came breaching up towards the warm and pleasant sun, and all the delights of air and earth, and vomited out Jonah upon dry land. When the word of the Lord came a second time, and Jonah bruised and beaten, his ears like two seashells, still multitudinously murmuring of the ocean. Jonah did the Almighty's bidding. And what was that, shipmates? To preach the truth to the face of falsehood. That was it. This, shipmates, this is that other lesson. And woe to that pilot of the living God who slights it. Woe to him whose world charms from gospel duty Woe to him who seeks to pour oil upon the waters when God has brewed him into the gale. Woe to him who seeks to please rather than to appall. Woe to him whose good nature is more to him than goodness. Woe to him who in this world courts not dishonor. Woe to him who would have not been true even though to be false were salvation. Yea, woe to him who, as the great pilot Paul has it, while preaching to others is himself a castaway. He drooped and fell away from himself for a moment. Then, lifting his face to them again, showed a deep joy in his eyes, and he cried out with a heavenly enthusiasm, But, oh, shipmates, on the starboard hand of every woe, there is a sure delight, and higher the top of that delight and the bottom of the woe is deep. Is not the main truck higher than the kelson is low? Delight is to him, a far, far upward and inward delight, who against the proud gods and commodores of this earth ever stands forth his own inexorable self. Delight is to him whose strong arms yet support him when the ship of this base, treacherous world has gone down beneath him. Delight is to him who gives no quarter to the truth and kills, burns, and destroys all sin, though he pluck it out from under the robes of senators and judges. Delight, top-gallant delight, is to him who acknowledges no law or lord, but the Lord his God and is only a patriot to heaven. Delight is to whom whom all the waves of the bellows of the seas of the boisterous mob can never shake from his sure keel of the ages, an eternal delight and deliciousness will be his, who coming to lay him down can say with his final breath, O Father, chiefly known to me by thy rod, mortal or immortal, here I die. I have striven to be thine more than to be the world's or mine own, Yet this is nothing. I leave eternity to thee. For what is man that he should live out the lifetime of his God? He said no more, but slowly waving a benediction, covered his face with his hands, and so remained kneeling till all the people had departed and he was left alone in the place. A bosom friend. Returning to the spouter in from the chapel, I found Queequeg there quite alone, he having left the chapel before the benediction some time. He was sitting on a bench before the fire, with his feet on the stove hearth, and in one hand was holding close up to his face that little negro idol of his, peering hard into its face, with a jackknife gently whittling away at its nose, meanwhile humming to himself in his heathenish way. But being now interrupted, he put up the image, and pretty soon, going to the table, took up a large book there, and placing it on his lap, began counting the pages with deliberate regularity, and every fiftieth page, as I fancied, stopping for a moment, looking vacantly around him, and giving utterance to a long-drawn, gurgling whistle of astonishment he would then begin again at the next fifty, seeming to commence at number one each time, as though he could not count more than fifty, and it was only by such a large number of fifties being found together that his astonishment at the multitude of pages was excited. With much interest, I sat watching him, savage though he was, and hideously marred about the face, at least to my taste, His countenance yet had something in it, which was by no means disagreeable. You cannot hide the soul. Through all his unearthly tattooings, I thought I saw the traces of a simple, honest heart, and in his large, deep eyes, fiery black and bold, there seemed tokens of spirit that would dare a thousand devils. And besides all this, there was a certain lofty bearing about the pagan, "'which even his uncouthness could not altogether maim. "'He looked like a man who had never cringed "'and never had had a creditor. "'Whether it was, too, that his head being shaved, "'his forehead was drawn out in freer and brighter relief "'and looked more expansive than it otherwise would, "'this I will not have to venture to decide, "'but certain it was his head was phrenologically an excellent one. "'It may seem ridiculous,' but reminded me of General Washington's head, as seen in the popular busts of him. He had the same long, regularly graded and repeating slope from above the brows, which were likewise very projecting, like two long promontories, thickly wooded on top. Queequeg was George Washington, cannibalistically developed. Whilst I was thus closely scanning him, half pretending meanwhile to be looking at the storm from the casement, he never heeded my presence, never troubled himself with so much as a single glance, but appeared wholly occupied with counting the pages of the marvelous book. Considering how sociably he had been sleeping together the night previous, and especially considering the affectionate arm I had found thrown over me waking in the morning, I thought this indifference was very strange but savages are strange beings at times you do not know exactly how to take them at first they are overawing their calm self-collectedness of simplicity seems a Socratic wisdom I had noticed also that Kwee never consorted at all or but very little with the other seamen in the inn he made no advances whatever Appeared to have no desire to enlarge the circle of his acquaintances. All this struck me as mighty singular. Yet, upon second thoughts, there was something almost sublime in it. Here was a man, some twenty thousand miles from his home, by the way of the Cape Horn, that is, which was the only way that he could get here, thrown among people as strange to him as though he were in planet Jupiter. And yet he seemed entirely at ease, preserving the utmost serenity, content with his own companionship, always equal to himself. Surely, this was a touch of fine philosophy, though no doubt he had never heard that. Though no doubt he had never heard there was such a thing as that. But perhaps, to be true philosophers, we mortals should not be conscious of so living or so striving, so soon as I hear that such or such a man gives himself out for a philosopher, I conclude that, like the dyspeptic old woman, he must have broken his digester. As I sat there, in that now lonely room, the fire burning low, in that mild stage when, after its first intensity was warmed the air, it then only glows to be looked at, the evening shade and phantoms gathering round the casements and peering in upon a silent, solitary twain, the storm booming without in solemn swells, I began the sensible sort of strange feelings. I felt a melting in me. No more my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against the wolfish world. This soothing savage had redeemed it. There he sat, his very indifference in speaking in nature, in which there lurked no civilized hypocrisies and bland deceits. Wild he was, a very sight of sights to see, yet I began to feel myself mysteriously drawn towards him, and those same things that would have repelled most others, they were the very magnets that thus drew me. I'll try a pagan friend, thought I, since Christian kindness had proved but hollow courtesy, I drew my bench near him and made some friendly signs and hints, doing my best to talk with him meanwhile. At first he little noticed these advances, but presently, upon my referring to his night's hospitalities, he made out to ask me whether we were again to be bedfellows. I told him yes, or had I thought he had looked pleased, perhaps a little complimented. We then turned over the book together, and I endeavored to explain to him the purpose of the printing and the meaning of the few pictures that were in it. Thus I soon engaged his interest, and from that we went to jabbering the best we could about the various outer sights to be seen in the famous town. Soon I proposed a social smoke, and producing his pouch and tomahawk, he quietly offered me a puff, and then we sat exchanging puffs from that wild pipe of his, and keeping it regularly passing between us. If there yet lurked any ice of indifference towards me in the pagan's breast, this pleasant, genial smoke we had soon thought it out and left us cronies. He seemed to take me quite as naturally and unbiddenly as I to him, and when our smoke was over, he pressed his forehead against mine, clasped me around the waist, and said, that henceforth we were married, meeting in his country's phrase that we were bosom friends. He would gladly die for me, if need should be. In a countryman, this sudden flame of friendship would have seemed far too premature, a thing to be much distrusted, but in this simple savage, those old rules would not apply. After supper, and another social chat and smoke, we went to our room together. He made me a present of his embalmed head, took out his enormous tobacco wallet, and, groping under the tobacco, drew out some thirty dollars in silver, then spreading them on the table and mechanically dividing them into two equal portions, pushed one of them towards me and said it was mine. I was going to remonstrate, but he silenced me by pouring them into my trousers' pockets. I let them stay. He then went about his evening prayers, took out his idols, and removed the paper fireboard. By certain signs and symptoms, I thought he seemed anxious for me to join him. But well knowing what was to follow, I deliberated a moment whether, in case he invited me, I would comply or otherwise. I was a good Christian, born and bred in the bosom of the infallible Presbyterian Church, How then could i unite with this fellow idolater in worshiping his piece of wood but what is worship thought i do you suppose now ishmael that the magnanimous god of heaven and earth pagans and all included can possibly be jealous of an insignificant bit of black wood impossible but what is worship to do the will of god that is worship and what is the will of god To do to my fellow man what I would have my fellow man do to me. That is the will of God. Now, Queequeg is my fellow man. And what do I wish that this Queequeg would do to me? Why, unite me with my particular Presbyterian form of worship? Consequently, I must then unite with him in his. Ergo, I must turn idolater. So I kindled the shavings helped prop up the innocent little idol, offered him burnt biscuit with Quee Quag, salon before him twice or thrice, kissed his nose, and that done, we undressed and went to bed, at peace with our own consciences, and all the world, but we do not go to sleep without some little chat, how it is I know not, but there is no place like a bed, for confidential disclosures between friends, man and wife, they say, "There open the very bottom of our souls to each other," and some old couples often lie and chat over old times till early morning. Thus, then in our hearts' honeymoon, lay I and Queequeg, a cozy, loving pair. Nightgown. We had lain thus in bed, chatting and napping in short intervals and quee now and then affectionately throwing his brown tattooed legs over mine and then drawing them back so entirely sociable and free and easy were we when at last by reason of our confabulations what little nappishness remained in us altogether departed and we felt like getting up again yet daybreak was yet some way down the future yes we became very wakeful so much so that our recumbent position began to grow wearisome, and by little and little, we found ourselves sitting up, the clothes well tucked around us, leaning against the headboard with our four knees drawn up close together and our two noses bending over them, as if our knee pans were warming pans. We felt very nice and snug, the more so since it was so chilly out of doors, indeed of the bedclothes too, seeing that there was no fire in the room. The more so, I say, because truly to enjoy bodily warmth, some small part of you must be cold, for there is no quality in this world that is not what is merely by contrast. Nothing exists in itself. If you flatter yourself that you are all over comfortable, and have been so a long time, then you cannot be said to be comfortable anymore. But if, like Queequeg and me in the bed, the tip of your nose or the crown of your head be slightly chilled, why then, indeed, in the general consciousness, you feel most delightfully and unmistakably warm. For this reason, a sleeping apartment should never be furnished with a fire, which is one of the luxurious discomforts of the rich for the height of this sort of deliciousness is to have nothing but the blanket between you and your snugness and the cold of the outer air. Then there you lie like the one warm spark in the heart of an arctic crystal. We had been sitting in this crouching manner for some time, when all at once I thought I would open my eyes, for when between the sheets, whether by day or by night, and whether asleep or awake, I have a way of always keeping my eyes shut, in order for the more concentrate and snugness of being in bed, because no man can ever feel his own identity aright except his eyes be closed, as if darkness were indeed the proper element of our essences, though light be more congenial to our clay part. Upon opening my eyes then, and coming out of my own pleasant and self-created darkness, into the imposed and coarse outer gloom of the unilluminated twelve o'clock night, I experienced a disagreeable revulsion, nor did I at all object to the hint from Queequeg that perhaps it were best to strike a light, seeing that we were so wide awake, and besides he felt a strong desire to have a few quiet puffs from his tomahawk. Be it said that though I had felt such a strong repugnance to his smoking in the bed, the night before, yet see how elastic our stiff prejudices grow when love once comes to bend them. For now I like nothing better than to have Queequeg smoking by me, even in bed, because he seemed to be full of such serene household joy then. I no more felt unduly concerned for the landlord's policy of insurance. I was only alive to the condensed, confidential comfortableness of sharing a pipe and a blanket with a real friend. With our shaggy jackets drawn about our shoulders, we now passed the tomahawk from one to the other, till slowly there grew over us a blue hanging tester of smoke, illuminated by the flame of the new-lit lamp. Whether it was that this undulating tester rolled the savage away to far-distant scenes, I know not, but he now spoke of his native island and eager to hear his history, I begged him to go on and tell it. He gladly complied, though at the time, I but ill comprehended not a few of his words. Yet subsequent disclosures, when I had become more familiar with his broken phraseology, now enabled me to present the whole story, such as it may prove in the mere skeleton I give. Biographical Queequeg was a native of Kokovoko, an island far away in the west and south. It is not down in any map. True places never are. When a new hatched savage running wild about his native woodlands in a grass clout, followed by the nibbling goats as if he were a green sapling, even then, in Queequeg's Kui ambitious soul lurked a strong desire to see something more of Christendom than the specimen whaler or two. His father was a high chief, a king, his uncle a high priest, and on the maternal side he boasted aunts who were wives of unconquerable warriors. There was excellent blood in his veins, royal stuff, though sadly vitiated, I fear, by the cannibal propensity he nourished in his untutored youth. A sag harbor ship visited his father's bay, and Queequeg sought a passage to the Christian lands. But the ship, having her full complement of seamen, spurned his suit, and not all the king, his father's influence, could prevail. But Queequeg bowed bow. Alone in his canoe, he paddled off to a distant strait, which he knew the ship must pass through when she quitted the island. On one side was a coral reef, on the other a low tongue of land, covered with mangrove thickets that grew out into the water, hiding his canoe. Still afloat, among these thickets, with its prow seaward, he sat down in the stern, paddle low in hand, and when the ship was gliding by, like a flash he darted out, gained her side, with one backward dash of his foot, capsized and sank his canoe, climbed up the chains, and throwing himself at full length upward on the deck, grappled a ring bolt there, and swore not to let go, though hacked in pieces, In vain, the captain threatened to throw him overboard, suspended a cutlass over his naked wrists. Queequeg was the son of a king, and Queequeg budged not. Struck by his desperate dauntlessness and his wild desire to visit Christendom, the captain at last relented and told him he might make himself at home. But this fine young savage, this sea prince of Wales, never saw the captain's cabin They put him down among the sailors, and made a whaleman of him. But like Tsar Peter, content to toil with the shipyards of foreign cities, Queequeg disdained no seeming ignominy, if thereby he might haply gain the power of enlightening his untutored countrymen. For at the bottom, so he told me, he was actuated by a profound desire to learn among the Christians the arts whereby to make his people still happier than they were and more than that, still better than they were. But alas, the practices of whalemen soon convinced him that even Christians could be both miserable and wicked, infinitely more so than all his father's heathens. Arrived at last in old Sag Harbor, and seeing what the sailors did there, and then going to Nantucket, and seeing how they spent their wages in that place also, poor Queequeg gave it up for lost thought he, it's a wicked world and all Meridans, I'll die a pagan. And thus, an old idolater at heart, he yet lived among the Christians, wore their clothes, and tried to talk their gibberish. Hence the queer ways about him, though now some time from home. By hence, I asked him whether he did not propose going back, and having a coronation, since he might now consider his father dead, and gone he being very old and feeble at last accounts he answered no not yet and added that he was fearful Christianity or rather Christians had unfitted him for ascending the pure and undefiled throne of 30 pagan kings before him but by and by he said he would return as soon as he felt himself baptized again for the nonce however he proposed to sail about and sow his wild oats in all four oceans they had made a harpooner of him and that barbed iron was in lieu of a scepter now I asked him what might be his immediate purpose touching his future movements he answered to go to sea again in his old vocation upon this I told him that whaling was my own design and informed him of my intention to sail out of Nantucket as being the most promising port for an adventurous whaleman to embark from. He at once resolved to accompany me to that island, ship aboard the same vessel, get into the same watch, and the same boat, the same mess with me, in short to share my every hap. with both my hands in his, boldly dip into the potluck of both worlds. To all this I joyously assented, for besides the affection I now felt for Queequeg, he was an experienced harpooner, and as such could not fail to be of great usefulness to one who, like me, was wholly ignorant in the mysteries of whaling, though well acquainted with the sea, as known to merchant seamen. His story being ended with his pipe's last dying puff, Queequeg embraced me, pressed his forehead against mine, and blowing out the light, we rolled over from each other, this way and that, and very soon, we're sleeping. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.